why can't women anti-heroines tell us the truth and still be liked? Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. It's the Book Society podcast. I am Lucas Cantor Santiago. I'm your host. We have an amazing guest today. Her name is Sasha Rothschild. She grew up in Miami Beach, Florida. She then went to Boston College for playwriting. You can hear and read her work on This American Life and LA Weekly. She also wrote a novel called How to Get Divorced by 30, which is a memoir that was from Penguin Plume. As a television writer, which is where you might know her from, she has done some pretty amazing stuff. She was an executive producer on the following shows, The Babysitter's Club, Blood Type, the smash hit Glow, I should say, Huge in France, The Carrie Diaries, and many more coming. She's been nominated for two Emmys. She has won an Emmy just recently. I won two Emmys. You won two. Yay! But she's not here for winning Emmys. She's not here for producing television. She's here because she wrote a brilliant book called Blood Sugar, which came out just this past year in 2022 from Penguin Putnam. It has been raved about in the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, and many others. It is going to be raved about on the Book Society podcast. And I don't actually review books. I just damn them with faint praise or not. So I have nothing but fulsome praise for your book. I devoured it, and I texted you as I was reading it. I mean, I I literally started it, fell asleep reading it, woke up and finished it. Absolutely loved it. It has uh, a lot of my favorite things in it. I'm a big fan of true crime. I'm a big fan of like Law & Order. I'm a big fan of these sort of detective mysteries. And I love a good antihero. I was also, on a personal note, about to start therapy when I read your book. It was a really fun first conversation with my new therapist. But I just read a book about a therapist who's also maybe kind of a serial killer. I'm happy you continued on the path of therapy even after reading this book. I have yet to be murdered. So um, I think that's uh, I think that's a good sign. So Sasha Rothschild, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you. Can you tell me, is murder sometimes justified? I think so. I think it's absolutely justified. If you need to protect yourself or a loved one, yeah, it's justified. Or I think if you see people fighting dogs, maybe you can murder them and it's justified. I think though those are my those are my things. Yeah, I think I think if you break up a dog fighting ring by murdering the dog fighters, like the cops arrest you, but they let you sit in the front seat. Yeah, you did. You know, these are not uh, these are not good people. Yeah, I totally agree. Your book starts with a beautiful, tranquil scene on the beach. It's just lovely. And very quickly turns into um, one child murdering another. So just tell me, what is the what was your what what were you thinking about? What did you like? What made you want to write a book about uh, a character like this? Well, one thing I was interested in is there's often serial killer tropes are children who abuse animals and are really um, mean spirited and psychotic and sociopathic who grow up to be serial killers. I thought it would be really interesting to start with a child who actually is very kind to animals, cares about the people around her, but murders someone that she feels needs to go. And to sort of flip the timeline of murder and what that then does to you. If you end up killing someone as a small child and get away with it, and it feels like it turned out very well, is that something you continue to do? So that was one thing I wanted to explore. Writing a novel 
often people say like when you write your your first novel you're always the main character no matter what you do you're sort of stuck being the person even if you're trying not to and I had written a memoir how to get divorced by 30 and I wanted to make sure in this novel that my main character Ruby was not me even though there's similarities I said it in Miami and I thought how can I make this woman not me from page one And for those of you who cannot see me, I am incredibly pale. I never go in the sun and I hate the beach and I hate the ocean. And I thought if I could place this girl in the ocean immediately in the sunlight, enjoying the salty water in my head, as I write her, I know she's not me. So then I'm released from, I'm released from any sort of reality of my life and released from feeling like I am writing about myself. And so that's why I said it at the beach. And then from there, it immediately, that first chapter at the beach, it immediately became clear that there would be a drowning, which is page two. So not spoiling anything for anybody. Yeah, there's, uh, I had an interesting experience because Ruby is such a compelling character that I wanted to text you immediately after I finished the book and tell you how much I loved it. But like in my mind, you were Ruby in my mind. <laughs> and so I was like, I have to remember that this is not, this is like, like, I don't want to start talking to her as if she's the character in her book. So give this a few days and then, and then tell her yeah. that. And then, so I'm glad I did that. Um, and Ruby is not, so Ruby is not autobiographical. She's the opposite of autobiographical. I think one way to write well is to be able to see the situation. So certain things I describe, certain rooms, certain colors, certain people, I like latch on to specific things I've actually seen in my life. So I can get the details really so specific that the reader feels they're in it. Then from there, I can write whatever I want. Um, and I do that with TV as well when I create TV characters. So a lot of Ruby is me in the sense that I had I had a cat for a very long time. I uh, did grow up in Miami. I do have a husband who is type one diabetic, which is how the sort of the plot came about, which is a huge part, obviously, of my life. But I haven't killed anybody. I don't necessarily agree with everything she thinks. I don't go about life the way she does. In a way, she's sort of kind of a fantasy for me of like, how amazing would it be to just make choices, never look back, never regret, never overanalyze them and be sort of without shame or guilt. I mean, that sort of seems like a really fun way to go through life. It is not how I go through life. One of the most beautiful parts in the book um, was really early and it was just funny. And so, so many of your observations are hilarious and then also really poignant, which is such a great thing as a reader to encounter. And it was uh, right after Ruby kills her first person, she says, guilt is like food poisoning. If it doesn't get you in the first few minutes, you're fine. You'll, You'll never feel it. That's just such a chilling thing to think about. And, you know, I, I think like you, I mean, I don't know how you were raised, but however you were raised, I was raised with some cultural guilt and I still feel that. Yeah, I think guilt is one of those things that I think until you've really done it, you can't quite know how you'll feel. I mean, I think in terms of murder, <laughs> murdering somebody, um, <laughs> there have been things I've done that I know are bad and I don't feel guilty at all. And that's sort of how I felt about that sort of food poisoning idea. And there are things I've done that I feel terrible about. And I would change if I could go back and be wiser and more compassionate. But I think that that's sort of healthy, like Ruby's compelling character, I hope, who will tell you she's not a sociopath. And it's up to the reader to decide if she's a healthy person or not. That's, I think, what I liked so much about it. And that's why it's such a page turner is it really, 
does seem like she is an otherwise very healthy person. You know, she's a she's a therapist who really cares deeply and and helps her clients. She has relationships that she is very Although, you know, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, her longest relationship in the book is with her friend from college. And that starts out pure, but becomes kind of transactional because they're both sort of psychopaths. They're both these like high achieving people. Yeah. Talk to us about that. One thing I wanted to explore was truly sort of can a man, you know, this is obviously always, you know, has been written about forever. And, um, you know, can a man and a woman truly be friends? Does there always have to be romance? And I wanted to harness a friendship with Ruby and a a man who she found very attractive and who the reader might assume is going to get together or want them to get together. But ultimately they're too similar to fall in love. Mm -hmm. Um, And they see the worst in themselves and the other, but because they're so similar, they really get along and they understand each other and they can be there for each other when they most need somebody. And that, that relationship is very exciting to me. And yeah, it's not totally pure. It's a little transactional, but it's kind of pure in that they're truly the only two people that can do for the other. They true. I think they truly love each other in, in a way. Mm-hmm. They can truly trust each other, even though there's some betrayal and some, you know, at certain times in their lives, in certain ways, they can truly trust each other. Yeah, I think that their their interests, it's not that their interests were aligned, it's that they, they have a, a similar moral code, it seems like. Yeah. And, you know, Ruby really helped him out in college, getting him out of an existential jam mm-hmm. um, by exposing herself to some possible consequences. And so he he did the same thing for, for her. I think there's something sort of romantic is, is the wrong word because I don't want there to be this sort of romantic feeling between them. But if you are in a horrible fight with a friend or you haven't talked to a friend in years and you're in trouble and you know you can still call upon that friend and that friend will be there for you, there's mm-hmm. something so grounded in that that and I think we all feel that we all know like who's that person that we could call that we haven't talked to in five years and just kind of get right into what do you need? I might be mad at you, but I'm here for you. And that's who they are for each other. Yeah, he's such a compelling character. Maybe it's just because I just like I don't know if you love these like I love these like legal dramas too and I love true crime. And so like just the way he went about everything that he did. I mean just the, again this is a spoiler but by the time he Basically, by the time he lands to what we think is begin the process of getting her acquitted, he's pretty much already done it. And yeah. it's, it takes him a couple of months for, for his plan to play out. But like he basically yeah. gets off the phone with her and knows exactly what to do and does it. Yeah. He knew, well, yeah, I think he he comes into her life. He meets the players. He makes a plan. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And I think, yeah, he's a guy that doesn't believe in right or wrong just believes in what can we all get away with and mm-hmm. who's the better who's the better lawyer really or who's the better manipulator which i think is a very it's sexy it's a sexy and evil kind of way to think yeah i guess they both kind of manipulate their world with an equal amount of skill in a way that is kind of unsavory yeah but maybe necessary yeah, I did have a friend in, in the book there. They there is a fight between the two of them where both sort of in a like performative way, Ruby wants everyone to know who she is and not really know who they are. And mm-hmm. he wants everyone to know who he is and also to know them. 
And that is a conversation I had with a friend in college and it always stuck with me. And so that, that was sort of part of how those personalities played out. What do you mean? Know who? Uh, ex- ex- explain a little more. So R- Roman likes to walk through campus and say, hi, Bob. Hi, Steve. Hi, Peter. And everyone's like, hey, Roman. Hey, Roman. He's the popular guy. Everyone knows him. He knows everyone. Whereas Ruby likes to walk through, have everyone say, hey, Ruby, and her saying, oh, hey, but have no idea what these other people's names are. That almost there's a I'm above it all kind of feeling for her. She feels there's a power in that where Roman feels there's a power in knowing everything, Hmm. which I just think is an interesting way to go through life. What's more, what's more powerful being feeling above knowing what's happening and having other people deal with it or knowing what's happening. And dealing with it. That's so interesting. And so to try to guess which side of this you fall on, I would, I actually wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to start because, you know, you're a successful writer and producer in Hollywood, which lends to the idea that you might find power in knowing everybody and knowing what's going on at all times, but you're also a writer and a deep thinker. And so it also might be the other way. So, uh, so tell us which, which, uh, which side of this do you fall on? I don't know that I do fall. I think both. I can understand both. And it I, and so it's sort of a boring answer because I'm like, I'm right in the middle. But I do think that's why it's an interesting discussion because I feel both things and I understand both things. I am very collaborative. I think that's very important, especially when making TV shows. And in that way, I want everyone to know who I am. I want to know who everyone is. But um, I also sort of get how kind of like, glamorous it might be to walk down the street everyone knows who you are and you have they're just like you know let them eat cake or whatever sort of so it's just one of those things that I end up thinking about deeply I don't quite know what to do with it but then I give it to characters to debate it out yeah that's great I have not solved it I just use it for I use it for character I feel the same way and I think that's why it's a compelling debate because there's probably a little bit of both of those in everybody You've written a successful memoir, a successful novel, and a successful TV show. Are the processes for doing these things different? And and if so, how? Very different. The process is very different. I think memoir was very specific because it's, you know, it's about you. You are writing nonfiction and you have an editor to guide you, but no one's really giving you notes because it's your life. And it's, you know, either people are going to read about it or not. The novel... I had this idea and I felt, okay, this is a novel. It could maybe be a limited series at some point. That'd be interesting or whatever. But um, but as I started writing it, I I took sort of this net, I've been on so many Netflix shows that this feeling of um, you know, next episode, next episode, I have that ability ingrained in me to like the next chapter, the next chapter, which I am glad you said you sort of kept reading because that was my hope. But with novels, everything, every word is free. Like nothing, every every word in a TV script is expensive. Every time you say it's a windy day, you you have to think as a producer, you need wind, you need special effects, you need wardrobe, you need hair changes, you need a million things. Whereas in a novel, it can be windy and it doesn't cost you anything. And so once I sort of thought about that, I realized I could write whatever I wanted and it was very freeing. And I didn't go... It's still, you know, I kept my tone and my story and I don't have like car chases and helicopter crashes and things that are very expensive, you know, in, to produce. But I was able to not worry about the confines of page count 
and cost of producing it, which has just been in my head for, you know, for a decade about what things cost. So I think for me, it was a really different process in that sense. That's amazing. And just for the, for listeners who are not familiar with television, can you just describe to us the pace of television? The pace of television writing for network, like a show, like, um, you know, a law and order or a, um, a modern family, something that's on every week on a network very fast because you've got like 22 episodes coming out a year and you're writing episodes and then you're producing and then you're filming the episodes and then the episodes are in post. So they're being edited and it's a constant whirlwind. And so writers in the Writers Guild, for instance, have five days to write a half hour script. And I think it's 10 days for an hour script, just to give you a kind of an idea. And then those scripts get turned in and then you have a couple of days to do rewrites and polishes. On shows for Netflix and stuff like that, everything can take longer because everything's coming out at once. However, those timelines are still in place of when a script is due, but then you get all 10 scripts together, then you shoot it all in a row. So the production schedule is very different, but the writing schedule is similar. That's really interesting. Yeah, for us on the composer side, we I, I wish we had rules about how long you had to give us to do a certain amount of music, but that doesn't exist. I mean, usually you get oh, about a week, sometimes two weeks. Um, but like, you know, towards the end of the season, you get into a crunch and, right. you know, it just yeah. becomes whatever, you know, you just got to get it done. That's really interesting. And then, yeah, but for a novel or for a memoir, you just, you have one deadline and you just have to meet it, basically, right? You have one deadline. And the first thing I did actually, when I decided to write the, the way I thought of this was I was up in the middle of the night because my husband, who is a type one diabetic, his glucose monitor beeps when he's low and it wakes me up and I wake him up and then he eats sugar and then I can't fall back asleep. So several years ago, this happened and he went back to sleep and I couldn't fall asleep. And I started thinking, what if he died? And then immediately my writer brain clicked in and I thought if he died, the police would come. I'd call 911. But then what if they thought I killed him because the spouse was always the first suspect? And then I thought, well, what if I didn't kill him, but I'd killed other people? And I, and then I was like, this is a novel. So I wrote, I have a little notepad, like very analog next to my nightstand with a pen. And I wrote that down and I woke up the next day and I was like, okay, this idea still holds. It wasn't like some three in the morning, bad idea. Um, and the first thing I did was Google how many words is a novel? Because <laughs> I had no idea, no idea. Um, and it's the an average first novel, an average novel is 80,000 words. And that is a lot of words, especially compared to a TV script or even a feature script. So it was, well, I don't even know where I'm going. It was overwhelming how many words. And then I just started and I thought I'm not going to worry about. And also for my first novel, I had no deadline because I was just writing it for me. And then the hope was to sell it, which is what generally happens when you have a first novel, no one will buy it on, on, you know, on a pitch. So I had no deadline. So I could just write and write and write whenever I had time. And that's that's what I did. You envisioned Blood Sugar as a series. As I was reading it, I, I told my wife, I was like, I cannot wait to see this. Like, this is going to be such a good show. I'm really excited for it. But that's how you that's how you thought of it as you were writing. And is that something you're working on? I, I, was, I was trying not to get too much in my head about as I was writing it, like, oh, this could be a show. I really didn't want to. I wanted to write it fully and be in the present of these are the words I'm writing for this book. But now that it's done and it's out in the world and people are liking it, I think it'd be an amazing character for an amazing actor. And I think there's so many men who get to be 
anti-heroes that we love and they're reliable. And I've talked about this other places, but like the Tony, the, the Tony Sopranos and the Walter Whites and the Dexters, they are horrible and they tell us they're horrible and we, we, and we still love them. Whereas women who are anti-heroes or anti-heroines are often unreliable. We're not sure. Is it a diary? Are they drunk on a train? Are they lying to their friend? Like, we don't know. And why can't women, anti-heroines, tell us the truth and still be liked? And that's something that I wanted to, to, to create. I wanted Ruby to be someone who she tells the reader the truth. She is reliable. And now the truth comes out at different times. So there's tension and suspense. But I I'd love to see this as a TV show just so we have that character where the woman is saying to the audience, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I did. And you're still, I dare you to still love me. I think you just described why I liked it so much because I, you, I haven't seen that before. It is such a great role for a person. Uh, for a, it, it will be a great role for a woman to play. That's so interesting that, yeah, you never really have women antiheroes who are reliable. And there were moments in your book where I have this, where, where you make her seem unreliable. And then you realize like, oh no, she told the truth about that. And there are moments in the book where even though she's, even though it's it's a first person narration, you're thinking she's going to get caught. She's like, she's busted. She lied. But what you unfold so well is that murderers don't behave normally over time. And she is perfectly from moment to moment, a person you would meet and, you know, not think twice about, or maybe you'd get to, you know, like, you would never think she was a murderer and no one in her life does until all these things come together and until all the silos start to blend, then everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, that is, that is very strange. And, and, yeah. uh, and I love that, but but these these are all people who really love her, and even when they denounce her, and I love the scene where she goes back to one of her clients who does not want to speak to her. She's a notorious murderer, but she, she tells this client something really important mm-hmm. that really helps her, and the client is grateful. Anyway, it's a beautiful book, and I'll tell you, Sasha, yes, as I was reading it, I was like, this would be a great TV series. Also, I would love to score it, but more than that, I am a fan, and I will be very psyched to see it, no matter who makes it and who scores it, so... I'm very excited. Thank you. Well, and I know you read a lot, so that means a lot. I can't say it's my one of my favorite books of 2023 because it's the first one I think I read this year, but it like it was one of my like top 3 books of the last 12 months. And I really just fucking loved it. Should we talk about one of my other top 3 books of the last 12 months? Yes. Holy crap. So, we're going to be back next week with Sasha Rothschild. We're going to talk about Madeline Miller's Circe, which is also about a anti-heroine and is also an amazing book and is also going to be made into a TV series. This one by HBO and while I would also love to score that one, I really just want to see it more than anything. So, join us next week. We're going to be back with Sasha Rothschild. We're going to talk about Madeline Miller's Circe. This episode of the Book Society Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair is a literary festival. It happens in Miami in November every year. You can visit their website, miamibookfair.com. You can find them on socials. They're amazing. So if you've ever dreamt about meeting up with some of your favorite authors, some of the greatest living minds in literature today, the Miami Book Fair is a place for you. They have the best authors around, giving talks, giving lectures, just walking around, looking at all the tables with all the wonderful books. It's a great place to buy books. It's a great place to be around authors. It's a great place to read books. And Miami is just a cool city. So if you've never been, it's highly, highly recommended. Thanks, Miami Book Fair. Thank you for this episode. Thank you for previous episodes. Thank you for future episodes. I will see you in Miami in November. Thank you.
I would definitely not be able to. Is that a bark of agreement from a dog? Um, am I the dog? Did I hear a dog? I thought I heard a dog. Maybe it's my dog. No, oh, I no. Have, my dogs have not barked and they've been very good. Oh, good. But good I was dogs. like, wait, is that some phrase and I'm the dog agree? <laughs> no, no, no. No, I just thought I heard a dog.